Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews before we get to Jude, okay? So, <laughs> you probably already had your Bibles open to Jude. You can keep your finger in there. Um, I was thinking about this passage of Scripture this week when I was thinking about tonight. And um, Hebrews chapter 5. This is not in your notes, you want to stay back there? Okay, it's it's up to you. Um, So Hebrews chapter 5, and I want you to look at verse 14. Hebrews 5, 14. Again, this is not in your notes because this is after the fact. It's just a a passage I was thinking about in, in relation to teaching tonight. So Hebrews 5, 14 says this. Solid food is for the mature... For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Okay. In the Christian life, we need discernment. What is discernment? Discernment's the the ability to distinguish, to discern truth from error, good from evil. It's a, it's a practice that we need as Christians. And notice what he says here. We need to have it trained by constant practice. So there has never been a time, I think, in Christianity or in our world where there's so much crazy stuff coming all over the place. YouTube, Facebook, internet, TV, podcasts, everywhere that are telling Christians mixed signals that we need discernment because false teachers are going to come in and try to sway us away from the truth. And if you remember last week when we started Jude, now turn back to Jude if you have it, if you had it open. I actually like that. You came in with your Bibles open to Jude, ready to go. That was good. I didn't have to tell you, turn in your Bibles to Jude. You were there. Last week we started Jude And the big issue that Jude started with is he's like, I wanted to write to you about our salvation, but I I had to detour from that, and I had to write to you to contend, to fight, not other people, but fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then notice there in verse 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, those who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So these false teachers, again, we don't know who they were by name, but they had crept in unnoticed. They snuck in and they were perverting the gospel. They were leading the people astray. They were perverting the truth, the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. And they were leading the people to fall away from the faith. And then last week, we looked at those three examples from the Old Testament 
of people that started out good but fell away. Number one, you had the uh, nation of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, they had to wander for 40 years and they died off because they did not believe. Then you had the unbelieving angels or the fallen angels. And remember that weird passage of scripture in Genesis 6, the angels came down from heaven and had sex with women and produced that ungodly Nephilim offspring and God put them in gloomy chains. And then the last example he had was Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So, he's going to continue, Jude, to talk about these false teachers and what they're like. And so, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to read just verses 8 through um, 11. And then we're going to look at all the way through um, verse 16. So, let's just look there at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also. Okay, these people. Who are these people? You have to go back to verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. So these false teachers, these people that have crept in, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, Jude likes to use things in threes. Remember how he started last week with the Trinity? We are loved by the Father, we're kept by the Son, and we're called by the Holy Spirit. Here he talks about, and guess what I forgot? My clicker. So, you, do you know where it is? It's in that top shelf um, underneath that box right there. There's a bunch of remote controls in there. Um, it's a pull-out drawer. Anyway, you guys have it on your sheets. It's just more visual to have it up on the screen. People on Facebook Live have no idea what we're doing, so they just have to listen in on YouTube. So they do three things to demonstrate apostasy. Okay, and so we look at this in verse 8. What are these three things? Okay, number one, number one, well, before we get to that, he calls them dreamers. Actually, he calls them um, in the, I think the NIV calls them filthy dreamers. <laughs> they, they kind of have abnormal imaginations. Are you finding it, Dave? Uh, yes, I think that's it. So number one, they defile the flesh. Now what in the world does it mean to defile the flesh? In the proverbial words of French, mercy buckets. I appreciate it. Or merci beaucoup. All right, so here we go. Number one, they defile the flesh. This probably refers to sexual immorality. That these false teachers were either, number one, engaging in sexual immorality, or they were leading the people to engage in sexual immorality. immorality. Now, I want to tell you something. The book of Jude and the book of Second Peter are very, very similar in the same things that they teach. 
So Peter and Jude talk about the same thing and use the same language because I don't know if Peter was addressing the same group of people, but Peter uses some of the same language about false teachers that Jude does. So 2 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 20, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Okay, they are enticed by sexual immorality. They defile the flesh. Okay, the second thing there in verse 8, they reject or despise authority. They reject authority. The, the word there for authority that you see there in your English translations, it's the same root that we get the word Lord. So you can almost say they reject the lordship of Christ. They do not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. And then number three, they blaspheme glorious ones. Now, what in the world does this mean? Okay. Blaspheme means to speak maliciously. Now, who are the glorious ones? Are they blaspheming angels? In the actual Greek text, it says glories. There's no definite article. It just says, they blaspheme glories. Now, there's some debate here. Some scholars will say they blaspheme angels. You could also take it as they blaspheme the glories of Christ. They don't submit to the lordship of Christ. They blaspheme the glories of Christ, and they are engaged in sexual immorality. Okay. Now, there are two issues in Jude that he refers to that we don't have any Old Testament passage to go back to and look at. So it brings up a question. Is Jude making this stuff up? Or is Jude relying upon Jewish thought? Here's the point. This is an inspired text of Scripture that's absolutely true. So what Jude tells us is true, regardless of whether we can go back and find an Old Testament passage for it. Okay, so he's going to talk about Michael the archangel. Okay, so what's this, what's this business with Michael the archangel? Because he mentions it right there, doesn't he? When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Okay. Troy's looking at me like, okay. <laughs> that's, the same, that's the way you're supposed to look. Troy's like, what? What do we know about Michael? Well, there's not a lot that we know about Michael the archangel. There's two angels that are given names in the Bible. Who's the other angel? Gabriel. Okay. Michael's called the archangel. Now, traditional thought was probably that Michael was second in command behind Lucifer. When Lucifer fell and became Satan, Michael became the, the head. We really don't know. The Bible doesn't say a lot about, all we know is that we have Michael the archangel. But what's he doing? Sometime 
Michael the archangel was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. Okay? Now, who buried Moses? God. Okay. Well, <laughs> Deuteronomy 3, 34, 5, and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So according to this passage of scripture, who buried Moses? God did. Okay. Jewish thought, again, we don't have a Bible verse to prove this. The traditional Jewish thought was that God gave that responsibility. God did it, but he gave the responsibility to Michael the archangel as the one to bury Moses. We don't really know. But all we know is we have a passage of scripture that says nobody knew where Moses was was buried. Now, here's a weird question. Why would the devil want Moses' bones? Seems like a weird thing to want. Okay. In the Roman Catholic times during the Middle Ages, they would have relics of old saints' bones all across Europe and people would go to see the bones and touch the bones and possibly get healing and mojo from the bones. Okay, that, that's, that's kind of what's, what's happened. Now think about Moses for a moment. Well, we, this is a hard thing to really twi- kind of, this is, my, this is my interpretation. I could be totally wrong on this. Who was in Israel's, in Israel's mind, who was their greatest hero besides King David? Moses. Okay, Moses. If you could get Moses' bones in a little box, what would people end up doing if they were, if they were Jewish? They could be enticed to go worship the bones as opposed to worship the Lord. And somebody that was really, really smart that wanted to charge money could say, hey, come to my museum or come to my ministry. I've got the authentic Moses' bones and I found them where Michael the archangel buried them. And if you come and you pay me such and such dollars, you can touch Moses' bones and you can get healing, or you can get your fortune told, whatever, okay? So the point is, whatever it was, there was a fight between Michael and the devil over Moses' bones. But notice what even Michael the archangel does. Does Michael the archangel rebuke the devil? Have you ever heard somebody say, I rebuke you, devil? Are we allowed to rebuke the devil? We're never commanded in the Bible to rebuke the devil. And even Michael the archangel, what does he say? He did not presume to pronounce the blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay? So, I think the main point here is, This is a weird passage of scripture that nobody really knows what it means. (laughs) And you can't be dogmatic on it. And you can't find an Old Testament passage of scripture. But it's in the Bible. And so it's true. But regardless of what, regardless of how we interpret it, what do we know about Satan? He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's going to twist the truth. 
And so somehow, if he got a hold of Moses' bones, he would do something sinister with it. And Michael argued with him and didn't tell him where it was. It's interesting that Satan didn't, does, Satan's not omniscient. He didn't know where Moses' bones were buried. Obviously, Michael the archangel did, but even Satan didn't know, okay? So, let's move on because that's, <laughs> I don't know how much more to say about that passage of scripture, okay? But let's look at verse 10. Back to these people. These people, again, we don't know their identity. We just know that they're false teachers. Verse 10, these people blaspheme or speak evil all that they do not understand. Okay, so they criticize, they blaspheme things they don't understand. And how are they acting? They're acting like unreasoning animals by instinct. Okay, let me just ask you a question. When an animal is in heat, is it thinking logically? What's it thinking? Okay, okay. Animalistic, instinctive behavior, he says, these false teachers are acting like brute animals on instinct. Okay, and again, Peter says this as well about the false teachers that he was addressing in 2 Peter 2.12. But these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Okay. So you kind of get a composite picture of these false teachers that they are lustful. I want to just call them men. They could be women. It's just as people here. They were lustful people who were caught up in their appetites. They did not submit to the lordship of Christ. And they were leading the people astray. And notice what Jude says in verse 11. How does verse 11 start? Woe to them. Woe. Not like Keanu Reeves in all of his movies where he says, whoa. But this is more like a woe. It's an inside joke for some of you that have watched. Woe is a curse. Like in the Old Testament, when somebody pronounced a woe, like you go back to Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the prophets, they pronounced a woe. And so what he does is he gives three more examples from the Old Testament. Okay, so we're going to go travel back to our Old Testament tonight because, again, we're not as familiar with our Old Testament as we should be. His readers obviously were because they were probably um, steeped in, in the scriptures. They were probably a mixture of a probably predominantly Jewish congregation. But woe to them. Okay, they walked in the way of Cain. So that's example number one, Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of game to Balaam's heir, Balaam. And number three, they perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, you're probably familiar with Cain. How many are familiar with Balaam and Korah's rebellion? Probably not as much. So let's first look at Cain. They walked in the way of Cain. In other words, Cain was probably the first apostate. Okay, so let's turn in our Bibles. We'll come back to Jude, but we're going to be in our Old Testament for a while. So go back to Genesis chapter 4. Now, the reason I'm taking us back to Genesis is because if a New Testament writer references somebody from the Old Testament, he assumes you know that whole story. And 
I'm going to not assume that because, again, we aren't as familiar with our Old Testaments as we should be. We probably need to go back and find out what, what was the way of Cain. If he's going to say they walked in the way of Cain, what was the way of Cain? Exactly. So, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. And I call this the seven sins of Cain. Seven sins of Cain. All right, let's read this together. Is everybody back in Genesis 4? Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The seven sins of Cain. What were they? Well, the first one is that Cain falsely worships God in an attitude of self-reliance and hypocrisy. Okay, I want to show you some things here in the original language that are very, very interesting. When Eve bore Cain, what did she say? I'll give you the Hebrew. Look what I did. Look what I produced with the help of the Lord. So Cain means I got, I achieved. So Cain's name from the very beginning means someone who self, self-generated or, or did something on their own. Okay, the word able, I'll say the word able the way it should be said in Hebrew. It means Breath. About breath. How long was Abel on the scene in this passage of scripture? He was there for a short time like a breath, like a vapor. He's gone. So what does Abel bring to the Lord? The firstborn of an animal sacrifice. Now, the text does not tell us in Genesis how Abel knew what to bring, but he brought the firstborn And he brought an animal sacrifice. So somehow Adam and Eve must have taught their children what's acceptable to the Lord as far as a sacrifice, even way back then. 
So Abel brings the proper sacrifice in the proper way. What's the proper sacrifice? An animal. And it was the, the firstborn, not, not a leftover, not a secondary. Okay. What does Cain bring? Now, you don't get this from your English translations, but in um, verse, where is it? Three, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. The word fruit there can actually mean like one fruit. Like he brought a banana. <laughs> or he brought one apple. Okay, so number one, Cain does not bring an animal sacrifice. He brings produce, but he doesn't even bring the best of his produce. He probably gives God like one, one banana, one strawberry, like a very small amount. Okay? So, there's a difference there in the way that they even approach God. So what was Cain's first sin? I'm going to give God the wrong type of sacrifice in the wrong type of way with the wrong type of attitude. I'm going to give him my leftovers and I'm going to give him not an animal sacrifice, but the fruit of the ground. And what does Abel bring? The firstborn of an animal. Okay. And what does God do? God looks with favor on whose sacrifice? Abel's, but he does not look with favor on Cain. Basically what Cain's doing is Cain is trying to look religious. Hey, I brought my, I, I did my thing, God. I brought you, I brought the sacrifice you required. I'm looking at religious, but his heart's not in it. It's sloppy leftovers and it's not in the right manner. It, it's not a blood sacrifice. It's not an animal. Okay? So now that was the first sin was this kind of religious, hypocritical attempt to kind of appease God with leftovers. All right? What's the second sin? He burned with extreme anger. Verse 5, But for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. He burned with extreme anger anger. What should he have done at that point? He should have been broken and contrite and confessed his sin to the Lord and gone and got the right sacrifice and brought it back. Instead, what does he do? Okay, God, that's the way you're going to treat me and you're going to show favor to my brother. I'm going to sit here and stew in anger at you. I'm mad at you, God, and I'm mad at my brother. Okay? What's his third sin? He did not listen to God's merciful warning to repent. What does God tell Cain? God's being merciful here to him. What does he say? Verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face, face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? What's he saying? If you repent and go get the right sacrifice and bring it back to me, I'll accept it. I've given you a warning. Don't sit here and pout. Don't sit here and be angry. Repent and go do the right thing. Go bring me the right type of sacrifice. I'm giving you a second chance. Romans 2.4, do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay. Number four, Cain's fourth sin he burns with jealousy over his brother. He's jealous of his brother. 
Why are you showing favor to my brother and not me? Now, who's the firstborn? Cain. Okay, in God's economy, in the Old Testament, usually the firstborn son is usually a jerk. Okay? <laughs> and, and it's usually like the second or thirdborn that gets the... Okay, so think about it. Who was the firstborn out of... E- Jacob and Esau were twins, but who came out first? Esau came out first. Jacob was holding his heel. Who was the firstborn son, Ishmael or Isaac? Ishmael. Who's the firstborn son, Cain or Abel? Okay. Who's the firstborn son? Was it Judah or was it Reuben? Reuben. Okay. So who normally, who normally gets the blessing? Is it the firstborn? No, in that, in that culture, the firstborn is always supposed to be the one that gets the blessing, but the firstborn is always the one that's blowing it, and God gives grace to the secondborn. So it's kind of a foreshadowing here of how God deals with his people. Now, this is the, probably the biggest sin we think of, okay? So this is this, these are the little sins, and I don't call them little sins. These are the, the sins that lead up to the big sin. Okay, what was Cain's fifth sin? He commits cold-blooded, premeditated murder. What does God say? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desires for you, you must rule over it. Sin's crouching at your door. Cain, if you don't, if you don't get a hold of this, if you don't repent, if you don't trust in me, you're going to do something you're going to regret. Cain had time to think about this. Was this an act of passion? What does he say? Verse 6. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. We don't have all the details here, but I'm sure Cain probably said, hey, let's go out and work in the field away from mom and dad. Just you and me, let's go out there as brothers. And the whole time, what's Cain thinking? I'm waiting for that opportune moment when Abel's not looking where I can kill him. Now, how did he kill him? We don't know. Did he plunge a knife in him? Did he hit him over the head with a rock? We don't know. It was just, it was premeditated murder. That was, the, that was the ultimate sin, murder of his own brother. Okay, but there's another sin, the sixth sin. He tries in vain to cover his tracks and lies to God. Okay, he tries to lie to God. Okay, so here's what happens. Verse, verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now, same thing that God asked Adam and Eve in their garden. Does that mean God doesn't know what happened? No, this is for Cain to feel the guilt. It's like he's in the courtroom and the judge comes in and says, where's your brother? Cain, where's your brother? And what does Cain say? I have no idea. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is, God. Okay, he's lying to God. He's, he's trying to cover his tracks. Hebrews 4.13 says this. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, him, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Can Cain hide from God? No. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not going to take responsibility for the crime. This, doesn't this sound exactly what Adam said when God came to him? Who told you you were naked? That woman you gave me and that serpent. But it's not me, God. His firstborn son, when God comes and says, where's your brother? I have no idea. I'm not my brother's keeper. The apple doesn't fall that that far from the tree, does it? Between Adam and Cain, okay? He's cursed, okay? Notice what it says. What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This is the first person to be cursed in the Bible. Now, Satan was cursed. The ground was cursed. And there was a childbearing, you know, not that there was a curse, but, you know, God said, cursed is the ground that you're going to work on, and cursed are you the serpent. But here, he's a person. He would be a restless wanderer. The word in the Hebrew also means to lament. He would walk around lamenting in agony and guilt over what he did. He would never settle down. He would just wander around lamenting what he did. In other words, sin truly mastered him. Now you think that may be all of his sins, right? What's the last sin? The seventh sin of Cain. He shows no sign of true repentance, but wallows in self-pity. When God pronounces this curse, what does Cain say in verse 13? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. God, why did you do this to me? Self-pity. He didn't repent. Do you ever see Cain here owning up to his sin? Do you ever hear him saying, I repent of murder, I repent of lying, I repent of all these things, Lord, please have mercy on me. What does he do? He just wallows in self-pity and says, God, why are you doing this? All he cares about are the consequences of his sin. You put this curse on me and I'm going to walk around and people are going to know that I'm cursed of God and I'll I'll be destroyed. And so God shows him grace by putting that mark on him so that he wouldn't be killed. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now the most important thing there is verse 16. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. It tells you everything right there. He didn't repent. He didn't seek God's face. He went away from the presence of the Lord. Cain was the first apostate, the first sinner to not repent and walk away. Cain's not a pagan in the deep dark jungles of Africa. He's, a, he's, he, he's pretty close to creation. He's Adam and Eve's firstborn son. God literally spoke to him. He knew who God was. And God showed him murder. What could have God done after Cain sinned? I'm killing you here on the spot. But he doesn't. In mercy, he puts the mark on him and says, you'll be a wanderer. Nobody will touch you. Instead of Cain saying, thank you, Lord, I repent, he just goes off as a restless wanderer and never repents. So, John tells us in 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother righteous. So Jude's first example here in this second section that we're in tonight is they walked in the way of Cain. These false teachers were like Cain. They were rebellious. They were unrepentant. They were evil. 
Now, it doesn't mean that they killed their brothers literally. It just means they had the same attitude as Cain. They let sin master them. They walked in unrepentance. They lied to cover their tracks. All the things. They walked in the way of Cain. All right, what's the second example back in Jude? Balaam. They ran in Balaam's error. There's kind of a progression in the original language. It wasn't like they were walking in the way of Cain. Now they're running in the way of Balaam. Now, Balaam. Let me give you a little background here, okay? We'll we'll turn to Numbers for a moment. In Numbers chapter 22, so just turn there. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to just kind of, I'll just kind of walk us through maybe some major issues here. In Numbers chapter 22, Balak, okay, Balak, B-L-A-B-L-A-K. Balak is the king of Moab. Now remember the Moabites, they're a pagan nation. Balak is threatened by the Israelites because the Israelites are growing in number. There's probably what, over two or three million Israelites wandering around the area, a large group of people. Balak is threatened by the Israelites. So he, in a sense, hires Balaam, who was kind of like a prophet or kind of like a, a god, like a, a religious man. He hires Balaam to go curse the Israelites. I'm going to pay you to go curse the Israelites because I know Balak says, "I know that if anybody, if the Israelites are cursed by God, they'll fail militarily and they won't be as strong. So if they're under God's curse, they won't be a threat to me. But I can't go curse them because I'm a pagan king. But I can hire you, Balaam, to go pronounce a curse upon the Israelites." And Balaam's like, ah, I don't know if I really want to do this. Um, but he ended up basically falling, falling into that, okay? So, if you look at chapter 22, Balak summons Balaam the very first time. And then you got the whole Balaam's donkey. If you want to read a very interesting passage of scripture that resembles Mr. Ed, some of you remember Mr. Ed, the donkey speaks. And the angel of the Lord has a flaming sword and won't let the donkey go past. And because he, he keeps hitting the donkey, and like, why are you hitting me? The donkey speaks back to him. So go back and read that. And then in chapter 23, you have Balaam's first oracle, Balaam's second oracle, Balaam's third oracle, Balaam's final oracle. Um, what Balaam ended up doing, though, was he enticed the Israelites to commit sexual sin with the Moabites. So in a sense, Balaam gave in to, he didn't necessarily curse the Israelites, but he gave in, he he led them astray. He ended up actually doing what Balak wanted to happen in the first place. So let's get to chapter 25. Um, I've got it on your paper, but if you've already got your Bible open there, let's just read it. And I have to be real careful how I pronounce this town, okay? (laughs) While Israel lived in Shittim, the people, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So as a result of 
Balaam's advice, Balaam's counsel, Balaam is a man who did what? what? What was Balaam's claim to fame? He was a hired, for money, he was willing to go lead the Israelites astray into sexual immorality with pagan nations. Okay. Numbers 31, 16 says this. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So what was Balaam's error? Balaam's error was he purposely led the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, remember, let's go back to Jude. The, Jude is... is calling the false teachers that are affecting his church, he's saying, these guys are like these Old Testament guys. So number one, these guys are like Cain. These guys are like Balaam. Okay, so what, if we could say what, what Balaam did in a sentence, what, was Balaam, what did Balaam do in a sentence? In his greed, he led God's people astray into sexual immorality. So if these false teachers are acting in the way of Balaam, these false teachers in Jude were greedy for money, and telling the church that they could engage in sexual immorality without any consequences. By the way, if you go to the book of Revelation, I can't remember which church it is. I think it's the church in Thyatira. Um, I think it's Thyatira. It also talks about how there were false teachers in that church that were like Balaam, causing people to fall into sexual immorality. So when you think of Balaam in the Old Testament, it's a man for hire that counseled and encouraged the Israelites to fall into sexual immorality. Yes. Yes. They probably, yeah, they married the Moabites. They had sex with the Moabites. They, which was against the Mosaic law. You could only marry a, a fellow Israelite. So to marry outside of Israel was actually breaking the law. The Moabites were descendants of, no, those were the Edomites. The Moabites, you remember who the Moabites were? When Lot got drunk and had sex with his two daughters, they bore Moab. So the Moabites were from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. That's who the Moabites were. A lot of interesting stuff in this. The Israelites should have known better. Okay, so the Israelites were not the Israelites were not practicing discernment. They were being led by Balaam. Oh, we'll listen to this guy. Sounds like he's a good guy. We'll listen to this guy. We'll do whatever this guy says. And Balaam's all the whole time probably getting money from the king to lead Israel astray. And next thing you know, it says, what does it say there? They hoard. They hoard themselves with the the Moabites. Okay? So you got Cain. They were in the way of Cain, the unrepentant murderer, Balaam, the greedy seducer, and then you got Korah. They perished in Korah's rebellion. Rebellion. Okay, so number three, it's called Korah's rebellion. 
Now, Psalm, 10, Psalm 106, 16 through 18 gives us a summary, and then we'll, we'll, you've got your Bible up the numbers. We'll go back and look at it. Okay, Psalm 106, 16 through 18. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Eberam. Fire also broke out of their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Okay, what in the world happened with Korah? Let's turn to Numbers chapter 16. Let's find out what Korah's sin was. And Korah died by the earth opening up and swallowing him in fire, him and his followers. So let's just backtrack, okay? Let's think about our Old Testament for a moment. Who was God's appointed leader of the Israelites to get them out of slavery, to give them the Ten Commandments, to lead them through the wilderness? Who was God's appointed man? Moses. And who was second in charge? Aaron. Okay. Moses was the mediator between a holy God and the sinful people. That psalm says that there were people who were jealous of Moses' leadership. There's always going to be somebody that's jealous of godly leadership. Moses was leading over probably two and a half, three million people, and Korah and his clan basically probably got together and said, why are we following this guy? Who put this guy in charge? I can do a better job than Moses. Let's instigate a rebellion and see if we can get rid of him and Aaron, and we'll be in charge. So that's kind of the setup to chapter 16, okay? You guys there, number 16? Now Korah, the son of Ezar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Ebaram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with the number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Now, what do we know about Korah? What was his background? He was a what? Levite. He's a priest. That makes it even worse. He's a religious man. He's supposed to be a reli- he's supposed to be a godly leader, a priest teaching the people God's word. He and these other guys get 250 chiefs of the congregation and they they rose up before Moses. Let's look at verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Okay. What are they claiming? What are they saying to Moses? You think you're all that, Moses. You think you're high and mighty. You think you're, this, you're God's gift to us. You've gone too far. And what's Moses thinking? If only you knew how many times I'm up on the mountain pleading that God doesn't destroy you, on my face praying for you, leading you. That's why Moses falls on his face. And look, verse 5, he said to Korah and all his company, (laughs) in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So what does Moses say? Moses doesn't say, hey, dude, I'm the man. Listen to me. 
Moses is humbly saying kind of to himself, if that's the game you want to play, we'll find out who's really God's chosen tomorrow. Let's just wait. If you think you're the one in charge, let's just wait till tomorrow and see how God has this all settled. We'll wait till tomorrow. Um, okay, do, do, t- do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? And then he's brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And you would seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? What's Moses saying? You're, you're, you're a Levite priest. Is it enough that God has, God has set you apart from all the other tribes? God has given you an allotment. You're supposed to be the holy ones that are leading the sacrificial system. So you keep on going down. You go down. Um, let's go down to verse 31. We can go back and read that. Verse 31 As soon as he had finished speaking all the words, the ground underneath them split apart, and all the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Who got the last word? The Lord. Now how did, how did Korah's rebellion end? The, the earth opened and swallowed them up and covered them up and they were consumed with fire. Okay, so what was the issue with Korah? Okay, Cain, the unrepentant murderer, Balaam, the greedy seducer, what was Korah's rebellion? I don't like God's appointed man. I'm going to go against God's authority structure, and I'm going to set myself up as leader. It's rebellion. And not only just Korah, but he got 250 men to follow him. So think about these men or these people in Jude. Okay, let's go back to Jude. Okay, I know we've been in the Old Testament, but Jude took us there. Jude purposely took us to three Old Testament examples. Okay, so let's go back and read Jude, verse 11. Woe to them! Woe, I'm pronouncing a woe, I'm pronouncing a curse upon these false teachers. These false teachers are acting, notice what he says, for they walked in the way of Cain. We just saw Cain. They abandoned themselves. They ran into the, into, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. So these people, these false teachers, were ungodly, rebellious, seductive, greedy, unrepentant. If you can think of three of the worst examples in the Old Testament of somebody who was like the epitome of rebellion and greed and sin. Cain was the first. 
Balaam was just kind of a sleazy guy. Korah was an outright rebel. Now let's ask the question. Did, all, did Cain, did Balaam, and Korah, did they all know the Lord? Were these pagans in the deep, dark jungles of Africa that had no knowledge of who God was? Cain was Adam and Eve's firstborn son. Balaam was kind of a prophet for hire. And Korah was a priest. So there's no excuse for these men to do what they did. And what does it show us about the people in Jude's time? These people in Jude's time were probably very religious. They knew the language. They knew church culture. They knew how to seduce. They knew how to play the game and lead people astray. And so Jude is warning against them. Now let's go to verse 12 through 16. Because Jude's used some strong language to identify these people. Brute beasts, fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Korah, Balaam, sexually immoral, fallen angels, ignorant, sneaky, filthy, dreamers. He can't just stop there. He has to keep going, okay? So what Jude does is he gives five other characteristics of these apostates. And, and these now, he's, he's taking us out. He's given us, okay, let's think about the six examples, six examples he's given from the Old Testament, okay? The, the disobedient generation in Israel that came out of Egypt that wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. That was number one. Number two, the fallen angels. Number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. Number four, Cain. Number five, Balaam. Number six, Korah. All Old Testament examples. Now he's going to shift gears and he's going to talk about things in the natural world. Things from nature. How these, these guys are like things that you would normally observe when you look at nature. Okay? So the first one's kind of hard to understand. The ESV says hidden reefs. There's probably a footnote in your Bible that says blemishes. Blemishes at love feasts. Okay. Who has blemishes? And who has hidden reefs? Uh, we're in verse 12. What does it say? Spots, blemishes, hidden reefs. Okay. Literally, it's hidden reefs. But the way that expression is used in the Greek means a blemish. But let me talk, what's a hidden reef or a hidden rock? What happens if, you, what happens if a ship comes around a corner and hits a, hits a hidden reef? What's it going to do? It's going to shipwreck. It's going to run aground. Okay. So somehow these false teachers were going to shipwreck people's faith. They're going to be dangerous. Now, what's this issue of love feasts? Their, their blemishes or their hidden reefs at your love feast. What was a love feast? The early church, when they practiced eating the Lord's Supper with the rich and poor together in the church family, especially in Corinth, they would meet together for what was called a love feast, um, an agape feast. So they would have the Lord's Supper and then they have a meal. Probably the closest thing we would have today would be like a potluck, Okay. But what was happening in Corinth was, well, let's just read what was happening in Corinth. Because you see an example of how they were abusing the Lord's Supper and the love feast. So in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, 
for this Lord's Supper love feast, it's not for the better, for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I condemn you in this? No, I will not. Okay, what was happening in Corinth? It's like a free-for-all. They were abusing the love feast. The poor people probably didn't have much food to bring. The rich people were were pushing the poor people aside, feeding themselves. Some people were getting drunk. There was factions, there were divisions. This kind of reminds us of what Jude's saying here is when these guys come into your church and you have the Lord's Supper, they're leading you into division. They're dangerous rocks that are jutting out that are going to shipwreck the church. In other words, they feed themselves first. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Now let me just ask you a question. What should a shepherd do? Feed the sheep. God has a harsh word in Ezekiel to the shepherds who fed themselves. Ezekiel 34, 1-6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened. The sick you've not healed. The injured you've not bound up. The strayed you've not brought back. The lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered. They wander over all the mountain and on every high hill. My sheep are scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. If these are leaders, false teachers that are coming into the church, they are not feeding the sheep, they're feeding themselves. What happens when the sheep aren't fed? Number one, they get weak. They're not protected from the wolves, and then they wander, they scatter. So these guys are coming in with the sole purpose of wanting to destroy the church, to scatter the church. To, to, I get the picture here that these guys were so greedy for money, they would have done whatever they needed to do to get money to manipulate the people if it meant destroying the church. As long as they got... I can picture two things here, okay? Just reading between the lines. These guys, and I'm saying guys, men, probably came into the church, and I guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, but I would make a pretty strong guess that they were sleeping with women in the church and going to these women and saying, you know, this whole thing about, you know, God's, you know, holiness and sexual you know, purity. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what the Bible says, but you know, God really can forgive. So let's go have sex. And after all, I'm kind of your, your pastor and you know, you'll get brownie points with God. And so don't tell anybody, let's go do this. 
I'm sure that's what was happening. And I think at the same time, they were getting money from people. Come to my ministry, pay me money. And, and, and so I hate to say this, but I think about like modern day televangelists when I think about these guys, that they're doing all of this stuff for themselves. Okay? So they're, they're hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. So they're hidden reefs. The first analogy there from the ocean. Remember, these are all from nature. Second, they're waterless clouds. Okay, you guys tell me, what's a waterless cloud being swept along by the winds? What's a waterless cloud? Nothing there. If you were in Israel, and it's a dry, parched land, and you saw a cloud come by, what, were you, what, what are you hoping? Rain for the crops. It's a waterless crowd, cloud. It, the cloud's coming, and it's going to promise rain, but does it ever deliver? These men are pretenders. They give great promises, but they're empty. And there's a Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and winds without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Okay, the second example, or the third example from nature, what are they? They are fruitless or barren trees. Fruitless trees in late autumn, late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. You guys know what a fruitless tree in late, what's late autumn? Like November-ish, late, late October. Okay, so twice dead, uprooted. A dead tree. They have no spiritual life. They're not only dead, but they're twice dead. Matthew fifteen thirteen. he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Okay, verse, verse 13, we see the, the fourth one here, wild waves with scummy foam. Okay, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Um, it's, the imagery here is kind of like scummy. If you've been to some places that don't have as great of waves coming in, it's kind of scummy. That kind of, when the water comes in, it, the scummy stuff, you guys are kind of like, we know what you're talking about. It's kind of scummy. It's kind of gross. Kind of stuck there and algae-ish and gross, okay? Um, Isaiah 57, 20 through 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Casting up the foam of their own shame. It's kind of like they come in like a wave. What happens when a wave comes in and crashes over you? You get wet, what they're doing is they're coming in with the wave of grossness, of scum, of pollution, and they're coming in like a wave over you, and they're polluting you with their own pollution. And you're just kind of stuck with it. Seaweed and algae, you come out of that. Scummy, polluted. Okay, they're also wandering stars. Wandering stars. Now, it could be wandering planets either way, but think about a shooting star. A shooting star makes a big flash initially, but burns out. They don't stay on the path. What's Polaris do? What's Polaris? Isn't Polaris the North Star? 
Somebody help me out here. Isn't Polaris the North? Okay, my science and Polaris is the North Star. What is the North? Back in the days before GPS, when, when navigators would go, how would, they, how would they navigate oftentimes? The North Star, okay. If they're wandering, if, if the star is wandering all over the place, how are you ever going to follow their direction? Okay, so let's just backtrack. These guys have crept in unaware. They're leading the people astray. They're like the Israelites in the wilderness that wandered and were destroyed. They were like the fallen angels. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're like Cain. They're like Balaam. They're like Korah. And then they're like scummy water, wanderless stars, dead trees. Um, really bad people, right? So what's their destiny? I'll say it this way. The darkest, hottest place in hell. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 13. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Utter darkness. 2 Peter 2.17, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Now, utter darkness. This is my personal opinion, okay? This is Sean Cole's opinion. So take it as Sean Cole's opinion. In hell, there's darkness and there's utter darkness. What I mean by that? Okay, what I mean by that is this. If a person who lives in the deep, dark jungles of Africa and has never heard about Jesus, when they die, they go to hell, correct? Is their punishment in hell going to be as bad as the person that these guys who led people astray in God's church and caused people to stumble? Which is going to, both of them are going to be in hell, right? Who's going to have the worst punishment? The false teachers. They're going to have a hotter, darker place in hell than just your average sinner. Okay, Jesus says this. Yes, it's not, just, it's not just some person that dies in their sins. It's somebody that influenced or caused a lot of... Now, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty two through 24, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, now let's talk about this. Was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Okay, who's Jesus talking to here? He has just gone to cities in Israel who saw him with their own eyes, saw him teach, saw him preach, saw him perform miracles, and rejected their Messiah in the flesh. And what is Jesus saying to them? Because you rejected me, an Israelite, and I'm here in person, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you. You're going to have a stricter judgment on the day of judgment. They're going to be judged for their sin. You're going to be judged more because you had the light and you rejected it. Now, we get into a difficult portion here with the prophecy of Enoch. The book of Enoch. Wasn't that a... Well, that was the book of Eli. 
Let's read this. <laughs> Denzel Washington. I got to take a drink because we're going to dive into some other interesting waters here, okay? Verse 14 through 16. This is where we're going to stop. But we'll, end, we'll end with this section tonight. It was also about these, these men, these people, these false teachers, that Enoch... The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Okay. Enoch... The seventh son of Adam prophesied. So you're asking a question. Where in the Old Testament is the book of Enoch? Where did Jude get this? It's not in the Old Testament, the book of Enoch. It's what we call an apocryphal book. It's a book in the apocrypha that the Roman Catholic Church accepts that we as Protestants don't. don't. Um, Jude, does, let's just look at what, what we find out here. Jude does not call it Scripture. He doesn't say, the Holy Spirit said through Enoch, or it is written in Enoch. It just says, Enoch prophesied. Now, we also, so Jude is quoting from an extra biblical source here to get his material. Now, let's not have a problem with that because Paul did it on like four occasions. In Acts 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and Titus 1, 12, Paul quotes from a secular source to prove his point. Now, why does Jude use a prophecy from Enoch? I don't know. But here's my guess. This is what a lot of scholars have, have guessed. Probably... Jude quotes from first Enoch because this was a prophetic book that the false teachers held up as maybe a book that they really liked. So it's kind of like Jude using their ammunition against them. You guys really like the book of Enoch? You're really fascinated by Enoch? Let me use Enoch to speak against you. That's kind of what most scholars believe. But what's the prophecy? Okay, I'm going to quote to you Enoch. So you're like... I've never done this in the church ever before, but I'm going to do it tonight. I'm going to quote to you a scripture that's not a scripture, but from, from First Enoch. Okay, so First Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. I have this in my Logos Bible program. I can pull it up. And so let's just read the uninspired Enoch and see what he's quoting here. For he comes with his ten thousands and his holy ones to enact judgment against all. He will destroy everyone who's ungodly and reproachful of all flesh concerning all works of the ungodly, the things they did impiously, the harsh words they spoke, and all that ungodly sinners spoke against them. Okay. Jude quotes that. But if you look at First Enoch, look, he comes with his ten thousands. How does Jude change the interpretation or change it. How does Jude quote it in verse 14? Behold, the Lord comes. Jude equates this with the second coming of Christ. So what Jude is doing here is basically saying to these false teachers, 
Christ is going to come back and judge you. Now, why doesn't Jude quote an Old Testament passage? I don't know. He quotes from Enoch. Why does he quote from Enoch? I don't know. Now, just because he quotes from Enoch doesn't mean that Enoch is not true. It's not inspired. It's not scripture. But is Jesus going to come back and judge the ungodly? Okay, look at that prophecy for a moment. It's in scripture. What word is repeated? I'll I'll read it again and I'll I'll give the right um, emphasis on the right syllable. Okay, so... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. How many times does the word ungodly show up? Four times. So Jude's using that for emphasis, right? What does Jude think about these men? They're ungodly. Okay, they're ungodly and they're going to be judged. So Christ will come back with his holy ones and execute judgment on the ungodly. Now let me give you some scripture. This is actually in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Okay? So basically Jude's bottom line is, listen, these guys are going to spend eternity in hell. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to judge their ungodliness. It's a warning to these false teachers. And then Jude just can't get get enough of talking about them. Notice what he does in verse 16. He gives some more colorful descriptions of these guys. It's like, Jude's like, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. But I got to take a detour because these guys have snuck in. And I'm going to tell you what I really feel about these guys. And he just goes off on them, okay? They're grumblers. They're, They're murmurers. Under their breath, they express discontent. Um, Just for the sake of time, in that passage in Exodus, that's what the nation of Israel was doing. They were grumbling against Moses. They're malcontents. (laughs) They publicly complain, not just behind the scenes, but they're outspoken and they're complaining. They're following their own sinful desires. They're enslaved to their lusts. This has been the main theme throughout Jude. They're loudmouth boasters. They speak great words that might be flattering, but it's all about themselves. And they are greedy men. Whoops. Did we lose it? I lost it. Oh, well. It's not on the screen anymore. Greedy men who show favoritism. We're almost done. They try to manipulate and smooth talk to gain a following by not giving the hard truths of Scripture, probably through greed and taking advantage of people. Okay, so overall, what's the main teaching of the verses we've seen tonight? Verses 8 through 16. Okay, these false teachers, I'm just going to bullet point what we've looked at tonight. Summary. Jude, tell us how you really feel about these guys, okay? They rejected the lordship of Christ. They were evil like Cain. They seduced believers into sexual immorality like Balaam. They rebelled against God's appointed authority like Korah. They were dangerous wolves who only fed themselves. They made great promises but never came through on their word. They bore bad fruit. They polluted others. They were disgruntled, greedy, selfish, and boastful people who took advantage of others financially. What's their end? Eternal and utter darkness where they will suffer the righteous judgment of Christ. 
Now, what does this mean for us? Well, I want to take us in closing to 1 Timothy. That's a long description, a very graphic description of false teachers, of their character, of their actions, who they're like. But let's go to 1 Timothy because Paul gives instructions to Timothy about false teachers, but he also tells Timothy and by extension us how we are to respond. So everybody is at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Is everybody there? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... Now, when we read this, think about what Timothy's describing and think about what Jude's described. He's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among God's people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness without contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he's kind of, Paul's telling Timothy about false teachers in his day. But here's what I want us to focus on, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, as for you, Christian, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, (coughs) excuse me, love, steadfastness, (coughs) excuse me, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. (coughs) So what are we to do? These people are going to come. They're going to try to twist, pervert, seduce, sneak in. They're going to try to lead astray. We're to be discerning, but what are we to do? We're to flee that. We're to pursue Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. We're to fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life about which you were called and made the good confession. Fight the good fight of the faith. What did Jude say? Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What do we say at the beginning of of tonight about Hebrews? Be discerning. Practice discernment. So, we have five minutes left for some questions, comments, or snide remarks. Yes, Deb, and speak loud, because last time I couldn't, I couldn't hear you since you're so far back. Um, so, do you know that you know they're not saved? Hmm. These are those who... that know they're not saved. I don't know if I can say they know they're not saved. They may be fooled into thinking they're saved. They're not saved, but they may think they are. Or they may know they're not saved and they don't care because they're getting rich off of acting like they're saved. I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. Um, 
Jude is written probably to predominantly Jewish, but there's probably some Gentiles in there as well. Um, But it's written to us today. I mean, in the original context, we're still God's people. And so there's still going to be false teachers that are going to come and... But he definitely uses a lot of Old Testament examples that they would be familiar with as Israel, you know, as Jewish people. Oh, call on me, Mr. Kata. Sorry, what? Yes. Uh. Wow. Okay, for those of you that are on Facebook Live, her question is, if there was a woman pastor over a church, is that a false teacher? No. Or yes. Okay. Let's put it this way. A false teacher can be a male or a female. Okay, a false teacher can be a male or a female. It's just a person that teaches false teaching. Okay. Is... An understanding of a woman being a pastor, the biblical understanding of the way the church is ordered, not in the way I understand it based upon 1 Timothy 2. I would not call that a false teaching. I would say that's like dogma, doctor preferences. That's a secondary doctrine that you can agree to disagree upon. But I don't think if you have a woman pastor, that's going to send you to hell. I would not practice it in this church and I don't agree with it in principle because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But I would not say, because I have good pastor friends who have women whose wives are leaders in their church and are pastors, I would not say that they're false teachers and go into hell because they have a woman pastor. (laughs) Beth Moore. (laughs) You're you're, you're launching all the grenades tonight. Beth Moore and this and... Yeah. So we need to be very careful. Okay, let's, this is a good point. Let me, let me, this is probably a good place. We need to be very careful that we don't label somebody a false teacher or a heretic outright. Okay. There may be somebody out there that teaches something that we disagree with on a secondary doctrine, but on the essentials, they're solid. Does that, does that, does that make sense? Okay. And that's a fine line. Because somebody that may have started out orthodox teaching the truth could slide slowly over time into error. Or they could be right on the teetering of it. Okay? And that's what we're going to see. Right now in real time. You are seeing people slide quickly over to error. Now, if a person is sliding into error but they're not there yet... I don't think we can label them as a false teacher, but we need to be aware and be warned. If they've, sl- just a minute, if they've slid all the way over into a false teacher, then we need to very clearly identify what it is that they're teaching that's false before we say that. And not just say it's an opinion or it's a difference of a minor doctrine. It's got to be like a clear, a clear doctrinal thing that, is, that would be identifiably false. Yes. Okay, so 
So are you saying, are your question is, if a pastor performs a gay marriage, is he going to hell? Let me just say this. If a pastor performs a gay marriage, he is disobeying the clear commandments of Scripture, not fulfilling his duty as a pastor, and is sanctioning what God calls sin. And he's leading people into believing that what they're doing is actual marriage when it's not. He could be in danger of going to hell if he doesn't repent. Man, you're throwing some grenades tonight. Um, we better stop while we're ahead or I'm going to get in trouble. All right. So let's, let's, let's pray. Okay, let's, let's pray. I appreciate the questions. Those are good questions. It's just... They're, they're good ones. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, this is a difficult passage, but it's good for us to see just what the mindset is of false teachers and what they do. And Lord, help us to be discerning, help us to flee, help us to pursue righteousness, help us to be in our words so that we can recognize these things and we see them. Uh, Lord, just protect our hearts and our minds um, from falsehood and help us to be saturated with the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.